0: Welcome to the Fantasy Sports Collective Podcast. This is your host, J-Dub. I'm joined by a longtime friend, one of my oldest friends, Los, Los Beans, Los Frijos Pintos, aka Tadlock. Uh, we've been going to school together since before, before any of us knew how to competently read or write, let alone that podcasting would be a thing. And we've got a two-part series here. First one, we're going to talk about the history of a long running what we believe what i believe is the most sophisticated fantasy football league manual ever and one of the longest running kind of leagues in general we're going to dissect the rules and highlight kind of how to supercharge your fantasy league on the second part which we'll we'll get to at the next episode is going to be a look at the most interesting free agent moves or trades of the offseason so veteran moves of the season just kind of like hot takes on them so don't get you slipping up no. hey! look what i'm whipping up this is america don't get you slipping up don't get you slipping up look what i'm whipping up this is america don't get you slipping up look how i'm living up. tadlock welcome to the podcast
1: thanks sir nice to be here
0: how are you doing oh you know i think
1: like a lot of people, struggling with with lots of change in life these days. We've had the kids transition out of school, and Chelsea and I are both working here at home. So trying to figure out a routine that keeps everybody occupied and civil has been an interesting challenge. Hard to complain, though, given given lots of things that that other people are going through right now. So, yeah, doing all right.
0: Yeah, In many ways, we have it really nice here in the Bay Area, particularly in the fields that we're in. But, hey, you know what? Someone's going to listen to this in a year or two and be like, what I forgot about that, so we're just in a valley right now. At least that's my take. I think that
1: un- I hope. think that's unlikely, my friend.
0: I <laughs> <laughs> hope. Well, it's not like they taught us about the Spanish flu in school, so maybe it's not next year, but maybe five, 10 years now. So let's bring it back um, to football. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. One of the things that you said I thought was right, which is how many fantasy leagues do you know that have like a legitimate written manual, let alone a thirty-page document?
1: Uh, none. Like, do you know none any? that I know of? I, I don't think that anyone uh, approaches our level of crazy.
0: Yeah. Well, you call it crazy. I like to just call it like evolution it makes it more, more, more. There's a, there's a level of sophistication and complexity, but I think ultimately it's not that complicated. And ultimately it makes it a lot more fun and fair. So we'll, we'll get into that. Before we get into that specifically on the manual, I'm curious how did you get involved in the league?
1: so uh, you mentioned in the beginning you and i you and i have known each other since third grade and i won't i won't reveal how many years ago that was but i th- I think the number may start with a four no it doesn't it's 30 something years no
0: not quite not quite um, no, we're still a few years out on that
1: but uh, you know i i remember when you all started this in junior high school and i i was occupied and interested in other things and kind of did my fair share of scoffing through high school as you took it deeper and made it stronger uh, with kind of the core group, I didn't. I didn't really get involved until college. You know, we, we'd come home from school and we would all be hanging out. And and really, I I got to a point where I felt like if I wanted to keep up my friendship with you all, I was going to have to make the plunge because it's all anybody was talking about. It became such a passion and such an obsession that I had to get into the mix so that I could hang out at parties and and at other social gatherings. So that's that's when I made the jump. I waited until college to get in. And since then it's been, you know, it's been the primary the primary vehicle of conversation, as sad as that sounds, through weddings and you know, get togethers and everything for for all of the years since.
0: Yeah, we got some stories on that coming up. But the league started in nineteen eighty seven and I would say it really started taking off late high school. So ninety-two ish, ninety-three was college. And what I recall, what really made the league or crystallized it was this desire among a group of of us from high school who had grown up together to connect through this. And we started actually writing up, I was a big factor in this, but, but several folks contributed to writing up letters from the league just talking trash, um, talking shit ultimately about what's going on freshman year, what's going on sophomore year that we'd send out. You, like, mean, I mean, we're talking you mean like mail.
1: real correspondence through the post office?
0: Real correspondence to send to every player in the league. I think there was a couple members who are now have been in the league for a long time who were in school with another friend there at Stanford. And the one person who was in the league at Stanford would get these things, share it with the others. And they were so desperate to be involved through these. They were like, I want to be connected to this through this. They got excited about it. Um, and so I think that was actually this moment where it really became this thing that was more year-round and became more special than just a, a fantasy league. But let me take a step back. I, I think one of the reasons we want to kind of dissect this and and actually provide some influence and, and, and a framework for people who really want to take this to the next level was one of the principles early on was, uh, was we wanted to have... We wanted to challenge ourselves and we wanted to do that through constantly evolving the rules right when we first started this thing back in the late 80s and early 90s it was very much a, a touchdown only concept that's how fantasy football was generally played and in fact i come across people who have been in leagues or are now part of leagues that were passed down from their fathers or even their grandfathers no joke they're still doing touchdown only because they're like, we're traditional as that's how it was started in like the seventies or eighties. Even I know somebody locally who's in yeah. one of these leagues that may have been part of the founding league. In fact, fantasy football was the one, founded Oakland. By the one in Oakland. Exactly. Yeah. And so there's a group of people here who are pretty, pretty senior and big supporters of the 49ers who've been very successful, who I I'm friends with the dot, uh, the, the, one of the son-in-laws of, or like maybe even like the grandson-in-laws of that group. And so he's in this, this league that maybe may even be an incarnation of that original one. They still do touchdowns. And I quickly figured out in the late 80s, early 90s, that's not that much fun. I'm watching these games. It's such a by chance. Like You might have a Barry Sanders, who's just a spectacular player. And contributing massively to his team's success, and then they bring in Rob Riddick at the goal line, and he would score 14 or 15 touchdowns in a season. It was like that's a complete waste. That guy's actually adding almost no value in real, in real life. Old school. So vulture. I really pushed. He was a vulture, exactly. So I pushed for like, hey, we need to expand this. And so very quickly we did, you know, extra points for 100 yards, extra points for 300 yards, and then it kind of evolved from there. And I think just a real quick synopsis or, or summary of it was. You know, we went from there to to uh, auction-based league. So everyone had a chance to get every player. And then from there, we went from actually when, right in college, we were like, hey, we want to build rosters long-term. We want to both have continuity with some of our players if you really love a player. I think a big driver for me was I'd gotten Steve Young and he was kind of the heir apparent for the 49ers as a big 49er fan. I was like, hey, I want to be able to like keep this guy for multiple years. So let's, let's develop a system where... You, you bid on a player and then you have the ability to sign them, lock them, and guarantee them a contract for multiple years. So we evolved long term contracts from there. And then sometime in college, late college, we're like, well, I want to be able to develop young players who may be third, fourth, fifth round draft picks. And that born out of this notion of developmental squad. And around that time, I think we were really pushing hard for kind of yardage and like, how do you bring yardage into this in a meaningful way? Not these like, these like arbitrary 100 yards or 300 yards passing. And that's when we started doing the the increments, I think of like 20, maybe it was. And you got like a quarter or you got like a half point. Keep in mind, by the way, that right around the time you got in was roughly around maybe a year or two later, we got the internet came of about and you started having commissioner software, if you will, league management software. We hand scored the first 10 years and it was brutal. Most of the team, people wouldn't even know their final scores until Actually, email came about, but but in back in high school, it's like we would do it on Monday. We would do all the scores. I remember out of USA Today. I
1: remember you guys would go get the USA Today over at uh, the market across the street and then would score by
0: hand uh, and tally it up. That's right. That's right. And in fact, there was a point in time where we tried fantasy baseball or roto baseball, daily games. It was a weekly, but you had a score every day. We did that very short period of time because it wasn't that exciting and it was a ton, ton, ton of labor to hand score every player. So anyhow, point being, we always did this principle of we want, we want fairness and equality. We want intellectual curiosity and we wanted to compete. Every one of us was a former athlete. In fact, every single player in the league, for the most part, there's been people that passed through that probably weren't athletes now that I think of it. But the core group of people were competitive And this was an outlet for us to be competitive. The principles were competition, intellectual curiosity. And then as we got older, particularly in college, post-college, we wanted to make this more year-round. So that was a point of, like, I had to reach out to you, Tadlock, in February or March because maybe I thought I wanted to get a a young player that you had on your roster or I wanted a rookie pick, you know, things of that nature. And so it really started to become a year-round game. I know that one of the things we wanted to talk about were why some of this stuff came into play and like what were some of the funny events around it? Cause I think those are our, our core part of it. But let me just talk real quick about the, the core of it. You know, so now the manual is such where it is about contracts. It's about the auction, building your team. It's all about balancing. Like how do I, do I go for the superstar? Do I go out and pay for Patrick Mahomes? You know, the top dollar, why do I go after the young guy, like a Joe Burrow or someone of of that ilk, where I can sign them and put them on the long-term contract. And I think the complexities made it a lot of fun, quite frankly. And it's allowed us to make trades that in most leagues, people would laugh at, right? I think one year there was a, a trade where there was almost uh, fisticuffs among several members of the league, where one member of the league traded five players that had been perennial pro bowlers. Stephen Davis was one of them. I don't remember all the players' names, but it was basically five players that were pretty valuable for one rookie pick, which was a running back out of Oregon State named Stephen Jackson, who had been a first-round pick of the Rams. And uh, we all felt like it was a highway robbery of a trade because one player got so much talent, and the other player got you know this rookie. And we all piled on thinking it was just a terrible, terrible trade. And the other guy got piled on like, hey, you're taking advantage. You're raping this person, yada, yada, yada. And the irony of it, and this is the things we've learned over the years, was that that trade ended up being very lopsided in the other direction because there was a bunch of injuries of those five players. They all were kind of at the end of their uh, usefulness. And next season, Stephen Jackson became an all, a perennial all pro and was actually, that ends up being a, a great trade. And so it's evolved quite a bit where we have these really lopsided trades on paper in a traditional fantasy league and it creates drama. So any thoughts you want to throw out there, stories you remember?
1: I just, I, you know, I, I sort of think about themes in that last story that you told. It's interesting, you know, the unpredictability of it all uh, is a huge part, uh, sort of variable reward psychology is, is, is you know, it's a key part of all of this and be careful what you judge. And then the other, like I, I, the thing that popped into my mind most as you were talking there is anytime I try and go have a conversation with someone in a normal fantasy league about what we do, it, it's comical how hard it is to land because cap management is such a key part of what we do. And we've created so many fungible assets. You know, you talked about DS spots, uh holder like topper holdovers uh cuts we've created all of these crazy fungible assets that carry value that just aren't a part of standard leagues that you know you get engaged with a league like ours and you sort of you get your vocabulary you get your history you get your economics and then you turn around and go out to the rest of the world and you try to have a conversation with a normal fantasy football person about what goes on and they look at you like you're crazy just because this thing has evolved like so many rule sessions at the draft each year. At this point, it's 30 different rule sessions where we talk about optimizing and changing and tweaking and adapting and keeping it fresh and keeping it new. And it sort of it sort of creates this interesting dissonance with the rest of the fantasy football world that, that sort of makes it hard to talk with anyone in some respects if they're not in the league and they don't understand kind of the complex value constructs that we've created.
0: Well, you brought up a point there I want to uh, double click on is the improper lineups slash tanking, which you really don't, quite frankly, have in other leagues. People tank because they lose interest. But in our league, there's actually an incentive or in the confines of this, of this manual and the structure, there's there's incentive. And there's been a bunch of things that have been uh, evolved to try to combat that. But there's been so many examples. Actually, the one I, I recall the most was... A situation where Randy Moss was traded uh, by an owner, I think, as the season was about to start, for a, uh, a quarterback who had some value, getting Mark Bulger, uh, who looked like he was going to be the heir apparent to Kurt Warner in the early Rams, kind of like that mini dynasty they had. The owner that had Randy Moss was going on a world trip with his wife at the time. They they raised this was early in their marriage, pre kids, and we lost it right there was this ethical in fact I think there was like an ethical thing created around this and the irony was Mark Bolger went on to be actually a highly valuable player um, and and took Kurt Warner's job um, but Randy Moss went on to have arguably his best season that year it may have I may be blanking this it may have been the year that he was on the Patriots had the, the 20-something touchdowns, but he led them to the championship game and they were barely managing their team from Tibet or, or ne- Nepal or somewhere. They were like backpacking in November, December. But to your point, the amount of, of consternation, anxiety that's been pent up around some of these things, and it's really evolved. I, I really feel like the last couple, five, six, seven years, while there's other things in our lives that have impacted kind of the the satisfaction or the the interactions we've really evolved to the point knowing that these things are part of it and you can't really judge a book by its cover aka the the assets on paper right now because things to your point cap management is so valuable that if you know and do by the way give some perspective here we will link to the manual you'll be able to uh, take a pdf version of this from the post. So if you can go into the the post at fscollective.com, it will be episode number 18 on the pod, and you'll be able to see this. But one of the things there was that it's a $500 salary cap. And if you've got a superstar like a Randy Moss, who's at the height of his powers, and he's ultimately, you know, kind of at market value, he's going to be getting paid 70, 80, 90, even potentially $100. So 20% of your cap and if you can get a mark bulger and again that's you know mark bulger now probably doesn't ring uh, isn't really that fascinating or interesting but maybe it's teddy bridgewater today you can have a teddy bridgewater at say 25 or 30 dollars for 3 years where his real value is probably 50 60 70 dollars the differential there is massive so you can go out and get you can have teddy bridgewater and now you've got 50 60 dollars in value to go out and get you know, a Julio Jones type of player. So a guy that's almost at that level, maybe not Randy Moss at the height of his powers, but close to it. So go. That's one of my favorite parts of this league is like
1: to win, you almost, especially like dynasties are built on the Kurt Warner at $2 DS plays, right? And so it it creates this, this speculative psychology. Uh, and I think really this is what led to the DS spot that you mentioned earlier. For those of you that don't know, DS stands for developmental squad it is a way for us to bring someone once you spend salary cap dollars on them into a contract. And instead of holding them onto a three year contract, which is the typical structure, it allows you to get a fourth year out of their contract and hold them on the roster. And it's typically used on like late round, speculative uh, young players. And if you do it right and you, you wind up hitting a superstar on a $2 contract, you um, you create such cap flexibility that you can fill two starting uh, roster spots that you wouldn't otherwise be able to fit. And and that is really the key to success And the psychology that that creates is awesome, right? Because you have, you have this group of people now who are scouring the fifth, sixth, seventh rounds of the NFL draft and looking at player fit. And, and you think about which folks are injury prone, and it might create an opening mid season for this young player to step in and like make a name for themselves. But there's this, it sort of creates this very interesting speculation, speculation psychology around, trying to hit a home run from a contract value perspective because it's really hard to win in our league unless you have two or three really advantageous contracts from a cap perspective. Who are the, Josh, I'll ask you you this back, you know, Kurt Warner at two bucks is the big one for me. That was, that was like one of these big contracts that was super high value and, and really paid dividends for a long time for one of our owners. Are there other super high value contracts that you remember over the years?
0: I could go on hours for that, so I won't spend too much time. But I will, I will elaborate a little bit on that Kurt Warner one. So, and this is a great example of how the the manual evolved. Uh, so we had an owner who is who's heavily involved, very competitive, and and one of the kind of like very from a personality standpoint, like really dominant and kind of a fun part of the dynamic. But his first, I'd call it eight years in the league, he was actually pretty bad at it. You know, he didn't win ever. Uh, maybe he had a playoff season here or there, but he wasn't that competitive. And around '90, I think it was '99 season, in that auction, he picked up Kurt Warner for one dollar. Actually, was it one? And he was I like is one dollar, and he was a journeyman. No one knew about him. He had actually been in an AFL, uh, which is Arena Football League, for those who don't know. And he also picked up a rookie quarterback, a sixth-round pick of the Patriots. And I think he paid $2 for this player, and his name was Tom Brady.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and, and this is one of these owners who has actually really pushed the envelope on the on the sort of definition of the manual. He actually went to law school, uh, very thoughtful about, like, what do the rules actually state? And so what, one of the things he did was he had so many prospects that preseason. He made a trade with another owner to park Kurt Warner on that roster because Dread. Kurt Warner, he already had two starting quarterbacks on his roster. And Kurt Warner's, the starting quarterback there was a guy named Trent Green. He blew out his knee in the first preseason game. He got hit low by a, a safety named Rodney Harrison and was knocked out for the season with the ACL. So Kurt Warner had been thrust into the starting job. And this owner said, hey, I, this guy's going to be valuable. I want to I want three-year him, but I, I'm not going to have room for him, and I think he's not going to be very good. So he parked him on this other team's r- roster, but he gave this weird – basically, there's was a caveat like – I can recall him back to my roster any given time I want, but you get to use him for the year. But you're going to three-year him, but he's back on my team at the end of the year, which was obviously fairly sketchy, right? Because it's like circumventing a bunch of different rules. Sure enough, Kurt Warner gets off to an incredible start. Those that don't remember that 99 season, he had three straight games of three or four touchdown passes. So he called his player back. And and, Cur- and actually Tom Brady, I think was was DS that year. He didn't even play. It wasn't until the following year, maybe two years where he actually started playing. Point being is that that's an example where the, the manual evolved. We uh, didn't allow you to do trades like that. you couldn't park a Ross, park a player. you actually had to if you trade a player, if I trade a player to you, I couldn't trade back for him for over a year and it was at the discretion of the league whether it was allowed. And that that and to your point also about those contracts making a team, those two players, propelled him to success. I think he might have even won that year with Kurt Warner first time and then has been successful from that point on and really has a formula around finding those those good-priced well, or good-quality players. I think he always had an act for that. He just didn't know which ones to keep. To your point, what I've really enjoyed was these fungible assets. The rookie picks is something you didn't mention. We have this notion of based on order of finish. Originally, it was based on order of finish, you would get the pick the next year. And so if you had eight teams or 10 teams or 12 teams or 16 teams, it'd be ordered one through 16 based on your order of finish. So the worst team would get the first pick. Well, we realized people would tank for the first pick because it was really valuable. And if you weren't that competitive, hey, I can go get the the number one running back, right? I can go get Darren McFadden or I can get, you know, Edron James or whoever the player may be, um, quarterbacks in this league, because I'm a big believer in super flex, by the way, which is something we didn't t- touch on. So the point being is that we created this lottery system where you actually, you know, it was like you weren't guaranteed the pick. And then we created a play-in tournament. So now we have rookie lottery play-in tournament where the teams actually have to battle each other. So it actually disincentivizes incentivizes you to dump all these assets towards the end of the year because you're going to be really weak when you get into the, the, the rookie tournament. One thing we forgot to mention, every fantasy league, whether you want it to be complicated or not, should do one thing. If I, if I could leave you with one recommendation, which is, Force two starting quarterbacks or at least have one starting quarterback in a super flex spot. A super flex spot, for those of you who don't know, is a flex spot that allows you to put a quarterback, running back, wide receiver, or tight end. And here's the reason why. Fantasy, to me, it's a fun competition. But if you actually like football and you like watching it, well, what's, if, what's more fun than having your player play? And if you want to watch your player play, you want your player to touch the ball a lot. What's the most important uh, position in all professional sports? What's the most po- right. position? Yeah. Uh, unless you've got Steph Curry or LeBron James, it's quarterback, right? They're touching the ball every play. They actually more often than not decide who wins or loses. So go with the super flex uh, process and it automatically elevates the value of quarterbacks. And you start too. it's so much more fun. The The league we're talking about historically has had 16 teams. So that means that 32 teams. When you have bye weeks, there's teams that can't start two quarterbacks. Well, that's okay because you've got super flex situations so they could start on the player there. And there's been teams that win the title with only one starting quarterback. But it's so much more fun to be able to start two quarterbacks because then when you watch those games, you're really into it. It's, it's even more, it's kind of why like if you go down the, the, the threshold, it's like, if you got your kicker going, that's the least interesting. If you got your tight end going, that's kind of almost you know that's pretty you know un- uninspiring unless you've got some special tight end that's involved in every single play, like the Antonio Gates or or uh, Tony Gonzalez is at their height or a Gronk, you know even even like a Kelsey isn't like a featured guy. I mean, he gets a lot of targets, but. But anyhow, point being that you, know, you kind of go up the food chain. That's why running backs are so much fun, right? Because they're getting, they're getting carries. They're getting tosses out of the backfield. But a quarterback is the, is the position to me. You've got to have an option to have two starting quarterbacks. It's just, it's just so much better, my humble opinion. Especially when you
1: compare it to normal snake draft leagues where the whole no quarterback strategy or the stream quarterback strategy is in play. I think you're right. It's kind of an interesting... Sort of opposing mindset. If you if you want to sort of build the league and replicate a lot of the thinking and strategy of of the actual football game that's happening on the field, which is really kind of one of the key premises of fantasy to begin with, you know the the no quarterback or stream quarterback strategy that a lot of people espouse in, in traditional snake league drafts, uh, especially with a smaller number of QBs, kind of takes you farther away from what's happening on the field, and so. I think you're right, flexing into a two-quarterback league that forces you to evaluate and understand and honors the value of the position uh, is an interesting angle to take as you think about the evolution of your league.
0: Exactly. Any stories or anecdotes you want to you want to bring up? Yeah,
1: we were talking about fungible assets. I love that we sort of evolved to a place where there are certain like like very off-limits fungible assets, you know, by by design. I think one of the things that makes our league great are like the super complicated trades. And we should talk at some point about how fantasy football trained business negotiation for a lot of us as we were growing up, like really complicated deal structure. And it sounds absurd to think about that in the context of fantasy football, but I like that there are fungible assets that lead to creative deal structure and that there are non-fungible assets. And I think back to the Larry centers for a super burrito trade that was vetoed by the league, right? You gotta, you gotta, you can't, you can't trade for assets that are outside of league bounds. Anything within the league is fair game, but no burrito for a player trades, which is, which is an interesting part of our lore and history that I love that I love telling other people about. What's the craziest Anything? trade? What's the craziest trade or what's the most, offbeat trade that you can remember from a creativity standpoint i think about one of our owners who lives in seattle uh who who is like always thinking about the most creative thing we have like salary dollars from 4 years out being traded on conditional performance if this player comes to my team and scores ntds i will give you 4 dollars a year from now 5 dollars 2 years from now 6 dollars 3 years from now there's all kinds of crazy deal structure and i love i love that about about our league
0: yeah. The burrito is a great one. I think the the owner you're re- referencing has been a, a guest on this on this podcast. So you can give him a shout out, Team Kitty. And he's always been kind of trader jack. You know, actually yeah. historically couldn't keep his players. He just was like spinning. He done a much better job the last 10 years of of recognizing players that he wanted to build around and still getting his trade on on sort of tier two players or players he wasn't built into. But yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, the other thing I was going to call it, I was looking at some of our notes, the, the spreadsheet. And <laughs> I will say there was a, there was a point in time where, and, and and actually to your point about the business negotiation and learnings, so I, I, I credit fantasy sports in general, but football specifically, and, and really craft and, and defining kind of what I've become in my career. Like my first 10 years was all about finding creativity and opportunity in partnerships with other companies and then negotiating terms that were, I always thought about it from a win-win standpoint. I learned that from fantasy football. I wanted I wanted every transaction to be beneficial for both sides because I recognized that like, we're trying to build a partnership. I'm not trying to win here because I beat you now and it's bad, then I'm never gonna be able to do anything with you going forward and you're not gonna wanna continue the partnership. And so, a lot of like what I learned through fantasy is what I've applied in my my business career. But I was gonna I was gonna touch on the it's sort of the interesting part of the league. I think for new people, and I think as we think about expanding and adding new owners and and creating kind of a, a new form, there is a culture shock because a lot of us were athletes. We don't think of ourselves as geeks or dorks. But when you come in the the auction itself. And there's like 13 or 14 computers and hardcore spreadsheets. And people have been doing analysis for potentially hours, but sometimes you know, months. It's intimidating. Yeah, dude, our, our league taught me pivot
1: tables and V lookups. I I I'm I consider myself like a as a point of pride. Like I I I got some spreadsheet game and it is it is largely because of the spreadsheets that I built for first for me and my own team management, but ultimately for the spreadsheet that, that sits at the center of the league and, and um, you know, keeps track of everyone's cap and everyone's players and everyone's contracts and everyone's trades. Uh, But, but yeah, yeah, it's the league that taught me Excel. The league taught me sort of statistically oriented thinking. uh, But yeah, it's, it's true. It's big influence. It's
0: funny now we live in a business world now where it's all about being quote unquote, data driven yeah um, and fantasy even roto baseball in the 80s like i used to play this game called pursue the pennant I remember, which was yeah. all about probability and stats and and i i actually had a mentor in early 2000s who had been very successful on Wall Street and got into tech, and he was a president of this company that I was working for. And he and I used to have these conversations with Moneyball came out, and we were both like, yeah, this is a no-brainer. Thinking about the anomalies of it's better just to get on base than make an out. There was no sexiness in a walk. And I think fantasy's done that for me in football, too. There's there's this, you know, again, that the, the player that just gets one yard at the goal line but adds no value any other way. And if you bring him out on the field, every person knows that he's either going to get the one-yard plunge or he's useless, like, those players are getting wiped out. And if you look at today, right, like, players that are one-dimensional, it doesn't matter what position they play, uh, well, at least in a skill position primarily, they're getting taken off the field. And, I, I mean, I, one thing to be interesting to get your take on is sort of a side topic, but at quarterback, like, do you think there's a place for Tom Brady in 20 years The immobile, sit back there, just make a play. I don't know. I think you know, there's
1: always sort of cycles and evolutions and you know, there's like this teeter-totter of focus. The running quarterback is certainly kind of the order of the day. And and I just think I don't know. I I, th- I hope to see a continued evolution towards more dynamic playmaking, where it's no longer the field general standing in the pocket, waiting for things to unfold and then hitting a hitting a mark. I love the more modern NFL offense, which is motion based and and you know seeks to create space and advantage with mismatches. So I, I hope we don't see Brady. Brady's great. I still think montana's i can't even claim that montana's better anymore but uh, yeah but,
0: montana was actually was he was the was first uh, of this
1: mobile. yeah totally he was the first of this breed right or well that's yeah. not true i can go back far enough and find other examples but, but yeah like i hope to see evolution towards offenses that feature folks like kyler murray over over the traditional pocket quarterback it's just a much more fun game to watch there's much more to parse there's much more to see there's much more to anticipate it's a more complex problem to solve which is really what i what i
0: love about fantasy yeah i really appreciate you coming on and doing this yeah. it's been it's been awesome and i'm excited for the season to come back we won't even touch on whether it will i was going to say back. do you think we're going to get football this year uh, we can talk about that in the next one uh, who knows but hey uh, yeah, thank you for coming on if you, if you enjoy listening to this please subscribe at your favorite podcast directory you can find this at uh, spotify um, Apple, be? Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, and whatnot. It's, it's all out wow. there. So, Sports Collective. Up. Thank up you all. Have a up. great day. Uptown, funky up. <laughs> Uptown, funky up. <laughs> <laughs>